My name is Umer, and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. Our last episode featured an interview with Dimitri Lascaris, who is a candidate in the Green Party of Canada's leadership race. In this episode, we're going to be chatting with an electoral candidate in the United States. The person I'll be interviewing happens to be a socialist who is running for office in one of the most conservative states in the U.S. Jana Ludwig is an activist based in Wyoming. She is the author of Together Resilient, Building Community in the Age of Climate Disruption. And Jana is running for the U.S. Senate. She will be one of the six candidates on the ballot in the Democratic Party's primary, which is going to be taking place on August 18th. So welcome to Oats for Breakfast, Yana. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And I should clarify that you will be one of the the six candidates in Wyoming, in the Wyoming primary. Right. Right. So to begin with, can you tell us a bit more about yourself as a person and why you decided to to run in this election? Mm -hmm. Well, the shortest answer to the why is that I feel like my kids are being handed a world of really increasing instability in terms of economic systems and social systems and ecologically. And my background is mostly in the world of the nonprofit sector and cooperatives of various sorts mostly working on sustainability and economic and racial justice, uh, particularly in the last five years, that's been an increasing focus for me. And I've lived most of my life in residential intentional communities, which makes me really an odd duck in terms of somebody getting involved with politics. But it means that I've done a lot of on-the-ground work with pioneering what a cooperative and post-carbon life could look like in the United States without kind of checking out of our modern way of living. And I'm a writer and have done a lot of training and consulting and teaching. And I've also struggled a lot financially throughout my adult life. And so my work history is this pretty odd mix of like this, like really kind of sexy activist sounding things and then working 10 bucks an hour, stocking grocery shelves and working in retail to get by. And, you know, I'm also running because part of my story is having lived out kind of two possible Wyoming futures. And so for folks who aren't that familiar with Wyoming, we're a fossil fuel state. We're one of the biggest producers of fossil fuels uh, in the world, actually. And um, I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in what was a post iron ore mining town. And my childhood had, there were a lot of suicides, there was a lot of alcoholism. There was a lot of times where kids would come to school without lunches because they didn't have money that week. And uh, and so it was not very good in terms of the economic situation. And I'm watching coal collapse in Wyoming and watching fossil fuels go downhill. And very quickly, Wyoming is becoming sort of a bigger version of that really rough part of my childhood. And then I've also lived in eco-villages where we're managing to live on 5 to 10% of the U.S. average consumption and emissions of fossil fuels and have seen sort of like, oh, well, this is what Wyoming could be, is something really different. And so I found myself last year when I was thinking about running 
sort of looking at, well, so what do I have to offer and realizing that I actually have sort of one experience in the very dystopic version of Wyoming's potential and then one foot in like what's really possible. And, you know, so I know that we can be more sustainable and that we don't have to wait for some big tech fix, but basically that we lack the political will and education and running for office has given me a chance to sort of build both some political will in the state and also just doing some educating about what's possible. And so, um, so that's sort of a, a glimpse into who I am and why I'm in this position at this point. Yeah. And thanks also for talking a little bit about Wyoming. And I, I, you know, I was, before talking to you, I was doing some research and it seems like Wyoming is Canada. (laughs) (laughs) It's this beautiful place uh, where, you know, nature is really nice, but uh, you also have a resource extraction economy. Yeah. But I, so I I actually, I want to ask you to, to talk a bit more about the state because I didn't know that much about it before doing, doing some research. I just knew that it was one of the two rectangular shaped states right above Colorado <laughs> uh, which yep. is the other rectangle uh-huh, yeah uh, and then I I also knew Yellowstone uh, National Park and the the famous old faithful geyser I think that's in uh, Wyoming yep right yep. so then but I'm sure there's a lot more to Wyoming than that mm-hmm. so maybe you know are there other other things that you think that might be important for people to know Yeah, well, I mean, I think Yellowstone is the kind of iconic image that people have of Wyoming. And I think that's for a pretty good reason. I mean, the, so the state is, you know, it's, um, a lot of it is high elevation, it's dry, it's windy, we have a lot of sun days here. And it's beautiful. I mean, there's not just Yellowstone, but there's the Bighorn Mountains, and lots and lots and lots of public land. And that's probably the thing that I feel like Wyomingites take the most pride in and a lot of people are here because it is just an incredibly beautiful state with a really low population. So you can go for, you know, many, many, many miles and not bump into other people, whether that's driving or hiking um, or canoeing or whatever other kinds of recreation that folks want to do. Um, And, you know, the state is, I would say, you know, somewhat different than Canada. I mean, it's pretty conservative. We're one of the most conservative states in the United States, which is already a pretty conservative country. Um, but we're not particularly religious, which is very interesting to me. It's um, it's very kind of live and let live, but also, you know, a lot of the kind of U.S. stereotypical, well, if you don't like it, you should leave kind of attitude is like very, very strong in the culture. Um, I think the other thing that is good to know is that we have incredibly good public schools. And a lot of that is because it was actually written into the Wyoming state constitution. Um, Like you will have accessible public education is a really core Wyoming value. And for a lot of time, we had abundant funding to be able to back that constitutional um, directive up. And as the fossil fuel industry is dying out, one of the things that is really suffering in Wyoming is that our schools are getting less and less funding every year. And so we're going from having had a really terrific public education system um, to having that be severely eroded. And that is on a lot of people's minds in Wyoming as, you know, our state is looking at, you know, even deeper cuts this year. In fact, the deepest cuts that we've had are, um, you know, coming down the pipeline right now in this state. And I think a lot of people are concerned about our public education system, which has been pretty terrific. 
And yeah, so it is, you know, population-wise, pretty small place. I think less than 600,000 people. Yeah, I think 570 and following. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I'm, and, and I imagine that's part of the reason why the COVID-19 crisis hasn't been so bad in the state. Yeah, there's jokes about we've been socially distancing since 1893, <laughs> you know? Nice. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so from what I can tell, looking at the numbers, less than 2,000 cases and 21 deaths. But I'm sure that, you know, everyday life has been affected as everywhere else. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. Uh, but I, you know, just I'd like to get a perspective from you of what, what life has been like on the ground in Wyoming during the pandemic. Was there a lockdown? What was the nature of it? What the restrictions have been? Yeah. Well, we um, we did have a shutdown um, that was relatively brief compared to a lot of other states. Our um, And our Republican governor was getting a lot of pressure to like not even shut anything down and open things back up right away. And he did a fairly good job of resisting that for a couple months. And then things started to get opened up again. And now we're seeing a second wave in Wyoming. And we were actually like the United States didn't really ever like the first wave sort of was like it plateaued. And then we started going up again. And in Wyoming, we actually had a, a spike and then a drop off. And so we are really doing a second wave right now rather than just the plateau thing. And, you know, a lot of businesses are still closed. Um, many others are having to do altered practices, like restaurants are supposed to be doing um, very limited seating, if any at all, and so are supposed to be masked. And the Wyoming sort of hyper-independent streak is really kind of biting us in the ass because a lot of people are just refusing to wear masks. And for whatever reason, the United States manages to politicize almost everything that shouldn't really be a political issue. And masks have become this big politicized thing. And it's been very interesting, you know, going to candidate forums where, you know, we're now that our... Um, the actual filing has closed for the primary, we're starting to have debates. And it's fascinating that at the first one, every Democratic candidate showed up either with a mask on or one in their pocket and sort of like looking around going, I should be putting this on, right? And none of the none of the Republicans did. And so, um, you know, which has meant that those of us who are Democrats who are going to these things then come home and go into quarantine so we don't get anybody sick because the Republicans have been jackasses and haven't shown up and actually done masking. Um, but, you know, our numbers have been relatively low. I mean, we've had, you know, a little over 300 cases per 100,000 in Wyoming, which is on the low side. I think there's only seven or eight states that have lower per capita numbers than we have. But the one way that we have absolutely followed the pattern that is happening all over the U.S. is that half of our deaths have been indigenous people in the state. And indigenous folks are only about two and a half percent of the Wyoming population. And so those numbers are extremely skewed. And like everywhere in the United States, people of color are absolutely getting hit a lot harder with this. And that's been true in Wyoming. So even though we have small numbers, it's revealing the same kind of cracks, you know, in terms of our healthcare system and in terms of our, you know, racial relationships and, you know, longstanding institutional racism has definitely been showing up here as well. And what about uh, the broader public? I mean, are people wearing masks? Is there physical yeah. distancing? It totally depends on where you are in the state. I mean, I, um, so I live in one of the kind of liberal bubbles in 
Wyoming. And then my people are sort of the socialists within the liberal bubble within the big red state. And um, as far as I can tell, like, the socialists are all being like, super on it with it. Most of the liberals are and most of the Republicans aren't. And so when I'm in Laramie, mostly people have masks on. And when I'm out and about doing campaign stuff, basically, the more conservative the town, the fewer masks I'm seeing, and it seems like a really direct relationship. And since most of the state is conservative, I'm imagining that most people in the state are not masking still. Uh, the electoral system here is quite different from the US. Yeah. And, you know, we, we do have a Senate, but its members are unelected. They're just appointed. And we, we have this kind of back and forth debate about the, about whether there should be reform to make it an elected body. Mm-hmm. But uh, So help us understand what the Senate is in the U.S. context. And I guess also what role do you hope to play uh, if you were to get there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in the U.S., so we have what's called a bicameral Congress. And so there's we have the Senate and then we have the House of Representatives. And every state has two senators regardless of how big your population is. And the House of Representatives are, it's proportional representation in terms of, um, well, that's actually, that's the wrong phrase. Um, you get the number of House reps that you get is based on what your population of the state is. And so, you know, we're the lowest population state in the country. So we just have one U.S. House rep. And it's really unusual to have fewer House reps than you have senators. And basically, you know, legislation in order to become a law, it needs to get passed. Identical language needs to get passed by both houses. And then the president needs to sign it as well. So there's actually three steps of approval that need to go through. And, um, and it's one of the reasons why you see people being so stressed out about like when, when things are split, it becomes like, there's a lot of games that end up happening in DC. If like the house is held by one party and the Senate's held by another one, um, you know, where one of the chambers is like, you know, passing something that works for their party. And then they have to like figure out how to like work it in the other chamber. And, you know, and we also have a tremendous amount of money in politics in the United States. And, you know, and there's definitely been, you know, I've gotten some blowback from Democrats because I am very clearly and vocally not a party loyalist and haven't endorsed Joe Biden. I'm not going to endorse Joe Biden, you know, and to me, the the most important line is not between the Democrats and the Republicans, which is where most people focus their sort of fight. Um, for me, it's between neoliberalism and, you know, that's destroying the planet and what I would call eco-socialism, you know, where there's this thin slice of the Democratic Party that are more open to policies that are actually taking care of people and are really interested in sort of recentering power in our economy on the masses instead of on the 1%. And to me, that's kind of the more interesting line. And that means that I am way over at one end within the Democratic Party and sort of have one foot in and one foot out. Yeah, so that's sort of like a little bit of overview of politics here and where I fit in. Um, There really aren't any true leftists in the United States Senate. I mean, Bernie Sanders is great in many ways, and I'm super grateful for the movement that I feel like he has helped spark in the United States. But I would not be running if it wasn't for folks who actually, you know, identify as either socialists or democratic socialists. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib are, you know, the three sort of big names in that category in the United States. And they're all 
women of color. Um, two of them are fairly young. I mean, none of them are, I don't think any of them are the average age of folks in the House of Representatives. So, um, so we have this sort of new generation of leadership. And I see myself being in sort of solidarity with that batch of folks who are really trying to um, make a difference in DC and who are willing to say things like, you know, we should be abolishing the police. And what about the CIA? And they're really questioning some of the power structures in the United States in a core way than we've seen before. And so if I manage to pull this off, I will absolutely be the Senate leftist. And, you know, part of the goal is to be sort of shifting the dialogue and like, what is okay to talk about in American politics and having a real platform for that could be a very interesting thing. You know, I feel like we need to be shifting the dialogue on a whole bunch of stuff, including the word socialism. And it's something that we've seen, we've made some progress on in the last year in Wyoming. I mean, I'm the first person to ever run as an open socialist. And initially, the press was very standoffish with me. And we've actually made a dent and we're starting to be able to have some real conversations about like, what is socialism? And what is capitalism, this sort of water that everyone swims in, and they don't even see that they're swimming in water. Uh, And so I think that that kind of a shift needs to happen on a national level. And so I expect I would be saying a lot of very unpopular things pretty regularly and trying to sort of open that window up for what we can really talk about in the U.S. So what does being a socialist mean to you? Well, for me, the core of it is how the economy is structured that, you know, first and foremost, it means that workers own their places of work rather than having a separate owning class. And, you know, that those of us who are actually getting the labor done are getting the full value of our labor instead of having a huge amount of the profits like skimmed off and going to a separate owning class. Um, And, you know, in the sense of alert. And so to me, that's what the word socialism really means is worker ownership. I do think that there's this notion of a democratized economy. And I think within that, it makes sense to me that if we are going to be paying taxes, that they should be used for our benefit and not just siphoned off to the 1%. And there's a lot of corruption in the United States on that front. Um, And so I do think that governments can productively do social programs and public utilities and have that be an expression of a democratized economy. But I wouldn't technically say that that's socialism. Um, I also think being a socialist to me means being in solidarity with justice and liberation movements. Um, You know, we have an initiative that our campaign just released that we're calling, it's a little bit awkward, but the hashtag is end the erasure. And, you know, there's all of these people in Wyoming who have never had representation. I mean, we have almost always had men. It's, you know, it's all white people. We've never elected a person of color to represent us in DC, no queer people, no disabled people. I mean, there's a whole bunch of categories of folks that I really see myself being, you know, I'm in some of those categories and not others, but I think it's really important. If you're going to be a socialist, I think you have to walk the talk of solidarity and you have to really be in connection with all of those different groups. And then I think there's a particular flavor to it for me, which is that I I tend to think that states and local communities ought to be able to have more self-determination than they do in the United States. And that, um, you know, I see the federal government having 
role, like having sort of three primary things that they ought to be focusing on. And that's those systems that it makes sense to have coordinated at that level. Things like healthcare, I think absolutely ought to be coordinated on a national level. I'm a single payer fan. Um, and then there's environmental protections because, you know, like pollution in the Great Lakes doesn't pay attention to whether it's in the U.S. or Canada, like it doesn't know those borders and, you know, carbon emissions don't know borders. And so I think we really need to have national action on that and that we need to be in there on the world stage being an active player with environmental stuff. And then finally, there's basic human rights and civil rights protections. And, you know, and then I tend to lean toward like, let's be working together as local communities, figuring out what we want. And then the federal government's job should be having our backs in creating those communities. And so I'm, I'm sometimes call myself a localist socialist, um, when it comes down to it, that I'm not necessarily into like, having lots of major big government programs, but I want the government to be working on funneling support into local communities so that they can figure out what they want their communities to look like. So you've already uh, spoken a bit, gotten into talking about your platform a little bit and some of the policies you're interested in promoting like healthcare. And, uh, but tell us a bit more because obviously, you know, you're not out there saying like we should have social ownership of the means of production. Like, I don't know if that means anything to people. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm much, I'm very focused on worker ownership. And, you know, also, like, I would love to have the whole pharmaceutical industry become a public utility, for instance. So there are some places there where I think we should be having very much socialized systems and that, you know, the government should own some of the stuff, public banks. I'm a huge fan of public banks. I mean, there's a handful of those things that I think make sense. But um yeah. Anyway, sorry, you were you were going to ask me a question. <laughs> but, but no, well, the question was just to, to ask you more about your uh, your platform. Yeah, well, I've been sort of joking that um, that if I get elected, I'm going to spend six years kind of asking pesky questions in D.C. And um, the three main questions that I want to be asking about everything are how does it affect working class and poor people? How does it affect the climate? And how does it affect human rights and civil rights? And I think leading with questions is a good way to do it because there's a lot about this job that is actually unanticipatable, particularly when you have a six year long term. I mean, that's a long time to be in office. And like, I don't think that the folks in the Senate right now thought they were going to be dealing with a global pandemic and racial justice uprisings all over the United States. And so I think understanding how people think about things and what kinds of questions they're asking, I think is a good way to approach it. And, you know, that generates certain policies. I mean, a Green New Deal that is very worker focused uh, is really central. And that's probably like my number one thing that I want to see us get, because I think climate disruption is the existential threat right now to everybody. Um, Single-payer healthcare, um, legalizing marijuana, expunging records, disbanding the police, and you know how we do policing right now in the United States is, I think, really critical. And it's something I've been working on for about a year and a half. And you know, having our communities be able to ask questions about, like, what does public safety mean? I don't know if you have that phrase in uh, Canada or not, but that's our sort of euphemism for policing and actually what the police do doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with public safety for real. Um, and then things like student get debt forgiveness, free college, um, public and postal banking. I mean, those are all things that I think fall into the category of things that would be deeply beneficial to poor and working class people. And, um, 
you know, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff around immigration and getting kids out of cages on our border. And why is that not happening on our Canadian border? Because mostly it's not brown people trying to come into the U.S. through the Canadian border. I mean, there's just a lot of deeply racialized systems right now in the United States that I would really like to see us be addressing. Um, I should probably also say reparations and treaty rights are also high up on my list as well, but I don't think I said that yet. So yeah, so that's sort of a glimpse into like both how I'm thinking and, you know, what some of those particular policies are. All right. So Wyoming happens to be what's often called Trump country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just to give people a sense of, of that. So Trump won the state by 46 points in 2016, and it was his best performance in any state. So that would mean that if Trump country had a heart, <laughs> maybe why maybe Wyoming would be it. And then the governor of this of the state, as you've said, is Republican. Uh, the two state senators are Republicans, and the one House representative mm -hmm. uh, is a Republican. But at the same time, Bernie Sanders, when he ran in 2016 for the Democratic primary in Wyoming, he beat Hillary Clinton uh, by a substantive margin, by 11 points. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, what is it that explains the poll that Bernie had in a place like Wyoming? And why do you think that it's important for socialists to engage with an electorate that, at least on the surface, seems like it's diametrically opposed to our political outlook? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that one of the reasons why Bernie did so well and then Trump did so well is that like there's a really anti-elitism thing going on in Wyoming. And like the Clintons are kind of the quintessential elitists in a lot of ways. And so I think like Hillary Clinton was a terrible choice, you know, to be the Democratic nominee. And it she was definitely a terrible choice for a place like Wyoming. Um, so I think that the, you know, it is true that what Bernie and Trump have in common is, uh, you know, populism, although I think Bernie's is actually real and Trump's is kind of bullshit. But, um, you know, there is that overlap. And I think that the thing about real socialist organizing is that it is really about like finding mutual interests and speaking to people from that place. And, uh, and so I think that's the main thing that we've been focusing on with this campaign is like figuring out like, well, what, what are those places of mutual interest? And, you know, and there's, there's some interesting places. I mean, I mentioned public lands earlier, and that is absolutely a place where the Republicans actually have a terrible record on something that is really important to most people in Wyoming. And we are also, you know, about 70% of the US and about 70% of Wyoming will say on polling data that they think that environmental protections are more important than the economy. And, um, and that's a place where we can actually get into some really good bridge building and cross party work. And, you know, mostly the Republicans have been pretty lazy about actually engaging around those issues. They just kind of rely on having a lot of money to throw at a lot of advertising, which is mostly fossil fuel money in the state. Um, and the fact that they have an R next to their name. And so we started, so I declared uh, last June 14th. And so I've been in this now for almost 13 months. And 
part of why we started so early is that we knew that we needed to kind of disrupt that and to, you know, be starting to have conversations with people about the things that we know we have in common between, you know, the further left part of the Democratic Party and most Republicans in the state. Um, it's also most Republicans like single payer health care in this state. And so there's a bunch of places where, you know, I think that we are just needing to be doing that organizing work and actually getting in there and having those conversations. And I am deeply frustrated with the Democrats in the United States in general with always starting from a compromised position. It's like they are perfectly aware that the Democratic base is actually very pro-union, you know, wants single-payer health care, wants a Green New Deal, wants legalization of marijuana, and they will start moving three steps toward the Republicans, and that's where they start the conversation in spite of the fact that that's not where their base is at. Um, and it's also not where any bridging is going to happen. I mean... Well, it's because their real base is Wall Street. Well, right. I mean, and I'm using their base as in like who the actual like people are. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's it's definitely like I say, I mean, to me that the line is not between the Democrats and the Republicans. It's basically between the corporatists and the socialists. And, you know, I'm much more interested in finding out where those lines live that run down the middle, I think, of both parties in a lot of cases. And I also think that there's, you know, that we've done some interesting things with let's not compromise and put a message out and see what happens with it. And so one of the things that uh, that we did is that my campaign just released a Wyoming public banking position paper about a month ago. And, um, and it's been really interesting seeing that like the people who have shown up for that conversation have been Republicans in the state legislature, not the Democrats in the state legislature. And Basically, everybody thinks it's a good idea, but the people who are intrigued enough to actually come to the table have been the Republicans. And so we're looking at this and going like, I think we need to stop doing this thing of like pre-compromising about everything and actually like plant some flags on the ground for like, what do people really need? What is really going to help our state budget? What is going to get us off fossil fuels? And start the conversation there and then see what happens. And you know, like I say, it's been very interesting to watch the press over the course of the last 13 months. You know, initially, I would show up as a, a sort of add on in articles in the state press as the Laramie socialist. And that was like my only mention in the articles. And now I'm getting media calling me and saying, hey, will you comment on this thing? And it's been a really different shift. And, you know, and it's not they're not using the word socialist as kind of a throwaway term anymore. They're actually starting to engage about what it really means. And that was one of the goals with this campaign was like, let's actually take some of the sting out of this word and actually like get people to have a different understanding of what it means. And so the primary that's going to take place on August 18th, how does that work? So is that going to be just people who are registered as Democrats in the state? Yeah, we have... Um, we have closed primaries in Wyoming, but you can switch your party affiliation on the spot and get the ballot. So it's like it's closed, but it's not like super slammed door closed or something. But you have to be registered as Democrat. And so you get a ballot and actually I have my ballot right here somewhere. I can show you what a ballot looks like in the U.S. if that's interesting to folks. Oh, well, this is only going to be audio. People aren't going to be seeing the video. Okay. Sorry, we haven't gotten to that level. 
Okay, that's that's fine. Um, yeah, and so um, so my ballot has so there's six of us in the Democratic primary, and so it's just the six of us. It doesn't have the ten Republicans who are also in this race, but on the Republican side listed on it. And so, um, yeah, so you just get to vote for the people in the party that you're in, but you can switch parties at any point. And there isn't any uh, coin tossing, is there? Because I saw there was some weird stuff happening. Yeah, there is not. No, that was, um, that coin tossing thing was happening with, um, not with primaries, but with um, caucuses. And so- Right, right, caucuses. That's like different states do different things with their presidential primary season. And some of them do caucuses where people get together, they talk, they vote in person and they voice vote or they're, they go stand at a certain side of the room and that kind of stuff for voting, um, which is different than balloting, which is how, and Wyoming actually does caucuses for the presidential election and balloting for everything else. So, and a bunch of states have that kind of weird mixed system. And the, the coin tosses were happening with the, um, with the caucuses, but not with the primary ballots. Right. Well, and the reason why I'm sort of asking about the way things work is I'm just wondering this. So if you guys have a, you know, a relatively small population, you know, there are, there are cities that have a bigger population than Wyoming does. Totally. And if there are, if the electorate in the primary is going to be registered Democrats, it's conceivable that a few hundred volunteers for a campaign like yours, you know, which is which has been in motion now for 13 months, yeah. could could conceivably talk to a majority, if not all of those people, yeah. and and potentially win them over. Yep. Yeah, and and so that's part of what we've been doing is just working on getting um, getting a lot of people making phone calls. We're not canvassing because of COVID, and so that makes. I mean, this right. season has been weird. Um, but we are doing a lot of phone banking and we're also doing a lot of social media and encouraging, um, you know, the, the best way to get someone to vote and to vote in a way that you want them to vote is to actually have a real conversation with them. And so we've been really encouraging the sort of peer to peer organizing work that, you know, which I think like union organizers know this, like basically anybody who does real organizing work on the ground knows that those one-on-one -on -one conversations are actually the best way to get people to vote. And we still definitely do have a problem where it's a lot of name recognition. And, you know, there is one person in this race who she's not the incumbent. We don't have an incumbent in the race, but we do have the person who used to be the U.S. House rep for Wyoming. And so she's the one whose name recognition everybody is trying to, you know, have to beat in order to win this thing. And, you know, and you get some of that through radio and some of that through advertising, but a lot of it you get through social media and actually people seeing you consistently saying things that they like. And then somebody that they know going, hey, have you heard of this person? Are you planning on voting? Here's why I want you to vote for them. And so that's been a lot of what we've been focusing on. And how has the reception been? Because, I mean, we've talked about this, that this is a, uh, a resource extraction sort of heavy economy in Wyoming. And you're someone who has written a book on climate change. So how do you find not only your pro-climate message? Is that is that the correct way to put that? Pro-climate? Are we pro-climate? <laughs> sure. I mean, I want the climate to be stable. <laughs> right. But how do you find that that part of your message to resonate, but then also more broadly? I mean, what so in the one-on-ones 
that your campaign is engaging and how are people responding? Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I think one-on-ones usually go better than people are afraid they're going to go. I mean, that's one of the things is everybody's nervous about like having these really awkward conversations with people about politics. And, um, and I do think that they've been generally going well. And, you know, mostly if somebody's going to be like totally shut down about it, those are the people that you call on a phone bank and they say, is she a Democrat or a Republican? And you say Democrat and they hang up. And so we don't spend a lot of time on those conversations and they definitely happen. Um, we have made a point of not just calling registered Democrats, which is the typical thing that campaigns do, um, but actually have been calling across the political spectrum. And, and I would say like, generally speaking, people under 35 are willing to have just about any conversation. And so we've done a lot of focusing on younger folks um, across party lines and mostly the reception's been pretty good because when you really get into it and start talking about it, it's like they know people who, you know, have gotten sick from, you know, whether it's COVID or cancer or they're having an, they have an opioid addiction, which is a big issue in Wyoming. And, you know, they get it when you start talking about healthcare that like, yeah, if people could actually go see the doctor and not be criminalized in the case of drugs use, um, that that actually would be better for themselves and their families and their communities. And so I think when you get into actually talking about the guts of the policies that we're talking about, those conversations go pretty well. And coal is really tricky in particular right now. And um, my big thing is like, I think that Wyomingites have been being lied to for a very long time by our politicians about um, the future of coal and about um, the instability and that that instability of coal, you know, the boom and bust cycle is becoming boom, bust, 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 boom, bust. I mean, it's really shifted over the last 10 years. And, and so I've been just being really real about it. And the way that I've been talking about it, that has resonated with a lot of people and has felt really respectful to the coal workers that I've talked to is like, I think we need to see coal as a beloved member of the Wyoming family that is in hospice. And, you know, when somebody is dying, it doesn't do anybody any good to be in denial about that. But you do everything you can to make that transition as comfortable as possible. And you think about what's next, you know, like, if you know, this is coming, if you can use that kind of hospice framework, that's really been good for people. Because I can say in the course of that, like, yeah, your work, your industry is why my kids have amazing public schools. And I really appreciate that public education. And then I think people are like, okay, so then what's next? And a lot of people just want a positive vision for what is next. And I'm painting that picture a lot more completely than anybody else's. You know, I'm making concrete proposals and I'm talking about here's a plethora of, op of options. And I'm not doing the super fucking annoying thing that a lot of liberals do, which is they say things like, well, coal miners can just learn to code or can just work in solar or whatever. And like, and I'm like, I find that really insulting. I mean, it's basically treating coal workers as if they are not real people who have real dreams and ambitions of their own for their lives. It's saying, I know from over here in my liberal bubble, how to fix your life. And I'm, and I'm calling bullshit really publicly on liberals who are doing that. And people who are working in the coal industry are watching me do that. Um, and so, you know, I think that 
you've got to actually get in there and again, see yourself as really being in solidarity with and in that sort of problem solving with mode with people. And then a lot of those conversations are actually going really well. Um, you know, and sort of at the other end of it, you know, my first hurdle is the Democratic nomination. And having written a book that basically had a Green New Deal platform in it three years before that phrase was a thing in the US has actually helped my Krebs significantly with the progressive community. And a lot of progressives haven't voted in a long time because they haven't had somebody to vote for. And so I'm sort of working both ends of this as much as I can and sort of trying to, you know, bring progressives back in and, you know, not shut out people who are more conservative who actually work in um, the fossil fuel industries. So, okay, so you're saying that one-on-ones with workers go well. What about uh, in terms of, you know, organized labor, you know, more broadly? Do you have uh, union endorsements? Because I know that, uh, you know, this was something that Bernie got flack for from one of the heads of, of a union that represented workers in the fracking industry, you know, mm-hmm. where the union had said that Bernie Sanders wants to ban fracking and my members rely on fracking for jobs. So if he's the Democratic nominee, I'm going to tell them not to vote for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So how, how are you finding that? Well, so first of all, we're a right to work state. I don't know if do, do folks in Canada know that phrase. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Well, it just, um, it basically means that there's, there's a set of um, regulations on the books in some states that make union organizing really, really difficult. And basically, the the specific right to work thing. um, The big one is that it says that so you can have a union shop, but not everybody in that shop needs to pay in their union dues, which basically has utterly gutted a whole bunch of unions across the country. Um, so we don't have a lot of smaller unions in Wyoming. Um, we do have, I mean, there's the AFL-CIO, they do not endorse during the primary. They wait until, um, after the primary is done and then they pick between the two remaining candidates. And the same thing is true for our other big union, which is the Wyoming Education Association. Um, and so I, you know, I am in contact with both of them. Those conversations have been pleasant and like have felt mutually supported and interested and they just have official policy that they don't do endorsements at this stage. You know, right to work sounds really good. It sounds like it's a full employment policy. Yeah. Yeah. I actually like one of the things that I would really like to do in DC is to like get a law through that says you can't name things, bullshit names that are super deceptive and like actually have some standards for this because it makes it really hard to have the conversation. What do you mean you're against right to work? The same thing, I actually hate it that Medicare for all is the phrase that is caught on in the US instead of single payer healthcare because Medicare is not actually that great in a lot of ways. I mean, you still have premiums and deductibles and like levels of coverage and a whole bunch of other stuff that like a lot of people on Medicare are like, but I don't want everybody to have it. I'm like, it's not what you have. It's actually really full coverage. And like, you wouldn't have a bunch of these charges that you have right now. But that's the phrase that got popular, unfortunately. So. All right. So last question. So for those of our listeners who are perhaps in Wyoming, what can they do to find out about your campaign and potentially uh, contribute to it? And then also, what about those who aren't in Wyoming? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, any U.S. citizen can make a financial contribution through um, Act Blue is the website that everybody's on. Um, and we are definitely up against some major money interests. We have both a, a corporate Dem in the primary um, with a lot of his own money and also some serious fossil fuel money um, if we get through the primary and are in the general. So um, financial support is very much needed. Um, and then for folks anywhere, um, our website is just Yana for the number four, yo.com. Um, and you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, uh, and Instagram. So those are all the social media places that we are. And really getting actively engaged and helping boost us on social media is one of the best things that anybody can do from anywhere. And if you know people in Wyoming, I want to invite folks to have some of those awkward conversations and, you know, get in there and actually talk to folks about like, so why would you be interested in this candidate who looks like she's pretty fringe, but actually is kind of right in the middle of a bunch of Wyoming values. Um, so if folks want to help out with that. Anybody from anywhere can be having awkward conversations on our behalf and we super appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast, Yana, and best of luck in the election. Thank you. I super appreciate it. It's an honor to get to be on a, you know, a podcast, you know, in Canada. Like, why would you be interested in an American candidate? And so super honored to uh, have you make some time for us. We appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. If you're interested in learning more about Yana's campaign, you can go to Y-A-N-A-4, as in the number four, W-Y-O.com. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, search for Oats for Breakfast on any podcast app and hit subscribe. If you're able to support the podcast, please head to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and become a patron. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again on August 1st.